Welcome to Now Appalachian, hosted by author and Appalachian resident, Elliot Parker. This show profiles the authors and publishers that have connections to the Appalachian region and how those connections influence and impact their works. And now, Appalachian. And a good hello to you once again, friends, here on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network as we bring you another episode of Now Appalachia, the show that profiles authors, editors, and publishers with connections to the Appalachian region. And when we talk about Appalachia, we're talking about a region of the country that encompasses 13 states, 420 counties, 205,000 square miles of territory, and over 25 million people live and have lived and call Appalachia home. So welcome to the program that profiles uh, those authors, editors, and publishers with connections to the Appalachian region. I'm your host, Elliot Parker. It's great to have you with us. And we have an outstanding memoir that we're going to talk about today on the program from an outstanding author who is also a West Virginia boy and a West Virginia native like myself. And we're glad to have him here on the program. His name is James Hill, and he is the previous author of a uh, novel called American Gothic. It was winner of the Nielsen Prize for first novel. His fiction and essays have also appeared in Literary Hub, Prairie Schooner, Hobart, Story Quarterly, and Waxwing, among others. He's an editor for Monkey Bicycle, Monkey Bicycle rather, and a contributing editor at Literary Hub. And there he writes a monthly audiobooks column. And he currently lives in North Carolina with his wife. And we are here to talk to him uh, about his new memoir and we're going to talk to him about it and it's called Blind Man's Bluff and it is his memoir about his life growing up and we'll talk about what he focuses on and what he emphasizes in that memoir in just a little bit but before we do that we want to say hello to JT and welcome him to the program so JT hello and welcome. Hi Elliot I had not been 100% certain I, I thought that you were also from West Virginia and I'm from Charleston uh, which part are you originally from Charleston also yes awesome you care to care to say which high school you went to I went to Capitol oh uh, wow all right the yeah. one who plays competitive athletics <laughs> <laughs> yes yes grew up on the west side how about you yeah my dad grew up on the west side I grew up in uh the unincorporated area called Loudendale. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Loudendale Elementary up to John Adams Junior High and then uh, GW for high school. So it's, it's really, and my mom went to GW originally. We, we grew up in that sort of rural area between Canal State Forest and Canal City. Absolutely. I know very familiar with that territory. So it's always good to reconnect with uh, someone who lived just literally uh, across town from me. Yeah. So uh, uh, good to have you on the program. And, Thank you. you know, I loved Blind Man's Bluff. It, it was a moving memoir and it was the kind of story where uh, at times I was sad. At times I was laughing. At times I wanted to reach out and give you a big hug if you were standing next <laughs> to me. And there's so many great things uh, about the book that I can't wait to talk to you about. But I wanted to start off and ask you something first, because uh, this is a detail that's pretty pretty pivotal to the story itself and you write about this early on in the book at age 16 you were diagnosed with Lieber's hereditary optic neuropathy so tell us what that is and what happened to you after you were diagnosed with that yeah so this is a pretty rare genetic condition where you experience an early burnout of the optic nerves and it leaves you with central blindness um and it's I believe the numbers are something like one in 30 to 50,000 people. So 
I, I don't know what that math extrapolates to in terms of the number of cases in the country at a given time, but it's rare enough that, that you know, it's like most illnesses uh, or, or rarer uh, uh, medical conditions, it, it took probably half a year just to get a, the proper diagnosis because I was losing vision in one eye and then it moved over to the other eye and then a blood test eventually confirmed. But so I have some fuzzy peripheral vision because the blind spots are kind of unwieldy in their effect, even on the peripheral vision. Uh, but I do still have some, some fuzzy peripheral vision uh, that allows me some mobility. And, you know, with very high powered magnifiers, I can, I can see some words in text. Um, but yeah, reading is out, driving is out uh, and all the things that, those two things might be connected to. And, you know, you write about that. I, I noted the quote that you wrote is in your story, in your memoir, you wrote, the short answer is this, I don't see what I directly look at. <laughs> and I think that connects strongly to uh, uh, exactly what you were saying. And I want to ask you about, you know, a, a stylistic technique that you used in the memoir. And I touched on it a moment ago is humor. And, and you use humor so often in your stories, you talk about sort of, uh, of being someone with, with, with visual impairments kind of in a, in a sighted world. And I was wondering, um, at what point in writing the memoir did you decide that humor would be a, a strong avenue or the primary avenue to tell your story? Oh, good question. Probably as, as at the very earliest, uh, earliest paragraphs. I, this, I, I didn't really set out to write a memoir in my writing life. Um, but once I had confronted blindness uh, in the novel, Academy Gothic, that had a, a legally blind protagonist, um, I, was, I was writing essays in, in, you know, in, in part to promote that book. And one of those essays was the first time I'd ever written about my blindness uh, in nonfiction. And the response was, was really good, but also just my own reaction to what I had written felt really good in that I had tapped into a voice that felt more natural than, than so much of the fiction that I had written. And I was able to sort of harness some of the sardonic self-deprecating humor from Academy Gothic and realize maybe, you know, as much as that novel was an attempt to replicate the hard-boiled humor of Raymond Chandler or Ross MacDonald and some of those guys, I, I think Part of that was just my own native voice uh, peeking around the corners of, of that narrator. And, and so I, I, I knew that I would never be able to tell the story, Blind Man's Bluff, in any way that I would want to read if it wasn't also fun, <laughs> if it wasn't something that took the tension away. Um, and I, I think it allows the tenser moments to be even more tense and and the sadness to be um, what it needs to be if you have that that release valve of humor. Uh, and, you know, you can't put humor everywhere uh, because there are moments that, that need that tension. There are moments that need that emotional uh, depth to be uh, intact. But, but yeah, to me, it, it, was, it was definitely um, a must if I was going to get through this myself as a writer, but also if, if I if this were a book I picked up um, it, as a reader, it's, I, I, would, I would want that humor as well. Very good. And I really liked how you, not only do you inject humor into this, but you kind of buttress your story and your experiences uh, of being someone with visual impairments 
um, around your relationships and what that did to your relationships in life. And I, I wanted to ask you, uh, we'll talk about the romantic relationships in your life in just a second, because I thought some of the best and most funniest stories in your memoir were from that. But you wrote about um, entering a creative writing program. And I believe this was at West Virginia Wesleyan University is the, in Buchanan. Is that right? Is that uh, but, yeah, that, that was where I did my undergrad. Yeah. Okay. And of course, they, they now have an MFA, uh, which is a low residency program. But yeah, at the time, it was uh, that's where I did my undergrad. And then... I, I'm just telling you this because I, I realize uh, I don't know that I name schools super blatantly in this in the book. Um, I name the areas, but yeah, I do. I, I then did a two-year master's at WVU in Morgantown, and then I did the one-year creative writing program at Hollins before it became an MFA in Roanoke, and then finally, finally finished up uh, all my my school with an MFA at UNC Greensboro. Okay, very good. Okay, I knew I knew about Wesleyan and I knew about WVU, but I wasn't sure about Hollins and yeah. uh, ultimately a UNC Greensboro. But you tell us a story about uh, about when you got into the creative writing program at one of those institutions, and we we don't have to mention it specifically by name uh-huh. of those of those <laughs> ones. We don't want to besmirch their program because this really has nothing to do with the program itself. But you you write about how you meet some classmates in that program, and they're unaware of your blindness. And you kind of sit back and um, you write about how you thought that they looked at you, those classmates, as being unapproachable. Or yeah. I think the actual word you used, and pardon my pejorative here, is an asshole, is <laughs> how you thought they, they perceived you. Um, and I just wanted to, to ask you to talk a little bit about that, because we'll get to the romantic relationships here in a little bit. But I thought what was funny, but also very poignant is not the, not the struggles that, that you had dealing with, with people who could see, but how people didn't really seem to understand what you were going through and what life was like for you uh, having this condition. Can, can you talk a little bit about that and, and the challenges and the problems that presented itself, uh, you know, in this context, especially when you're starting a new program and, and trying yeah. to get to know new people and, and yet everybody just doesn't seem to understand kind of what you're going through and, and how this impacts your life on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. And, and, you know, I'll, I'll take the brunt of the blame for people not, not understanding uh, my situation because really through, and, you know, through the, uh, until close to the end of the, the narrative, which spans about eh, 15, 17 years um, uh, until the latter few years of that narrative, of my life until at well after I finished grad school, um, you know, I, I made it my primary priority to spend all my time and energy minimizing and downplaying. And, you know, even when, when friends became uh, close enough for, for me to have to rely on them for, for certain things like reading menus or, or reading movies at the video store or occasionally uh, me uh, daring to ask for help on, on a paper, uh, I would still never let them fully in into what I couldn't see. I would never, never tell my two best friends in college that I couldn't see the 13 inch TV screen at all. I was just pasting together the narrative in my head from the audio clues. And, uh, so, you know, a big part of that barrier was, was self-inflicted, self-imposed. Um, and, and, it, it got better once I started realizing um, 
well, it got better much, much later, but, but little epiphanies along the way when you realize that the people that you're closest to are just, you know, there's no, co- it's, it's no coincidence. Those are the people with whom you, you shared the most uh, truth about, about what you can and can't do or see. Very interesting. Very interesting. And so I wanted to ask you, uh, kind of tease this a moment ago about your romantic relationships. Again, very poignant, but kind of funny uh, and humorous in the way that you tell it. Uh, One of the things we learn about you in terms of pursuing romantic relationships is on dates, you would arrive at the restaurants first Mm -hmm. so that your date would have to find you and you wouldn't have to go through the process of trying to locate where they are. Um, But you also tell us some stories about... um, having arguments with with the various girls and women that you date over the years over the grocery store yeah and you hate the grocery store um so so what happened there and what what led to so many of those arguments uh when you and and your girlfriends would go to the grocery store because I really thought that was a those were some pivotal pivotal moments in the memoir but also again kind of going back to the idea of people not really understanding completely what you're going through trying to deal with this condition my second in college uh, is just these trips to the grocery store were my first revelation that, wow, I really had gotten away with fooling her to thinking I was capable of so much more than I was. And we got to the grocery store once we went off the meal plan junior year. Now, not only as a team did I have no idea how to cook for myself beyond, you know, processed foods and, and, and what a meal. I've got to make three meals a day. Maybe I'll skip breakfast. That's only two meals. Croissant pockets, that'll take care of one. Uh, but eventually, I'm, I, and these foods, and I'm going to have to procure them with the help of this girlfriend. And, you know, f- uh, one of the things I realized is, is friends never seem to have as much of a, a problem helping me find things as, as, this girlfriend and future girlfriends, because the stakes in a friendship are so much lower than the stakes in a romantic relationship. And so that level of honesty that, that a friend requires from you is, is probably lower um, for, for friendship intimacy than romantic intimacy. Um, but also in, in college and all the way through grad school, your world is so much smaller. Uh, you know, my freshman year girlfriend, this never came up because we never left campus except to go maybe three, three blocks to the dairy, the, the pop-up Dairy Queen, uh, whenever it opened, when it got warm enough. And, uh, you know, even grad school, you don't venture far f- from, uh, from campus. Half the people don't have cars. And, and so those, those situational, uh, variables made it even easier to pass. And, and, um, you know, on one hand, uh, that was, a relief to me back then, but on the other hand, it delayed the inevitable uh, self-acceptance or, or confrontation of of how much uh, how many lies of an commission I was telling over the years. Interesting, very interesting. We've been talking with and are talking with J.T. Hill, James Tate Hill. His new memoir is called Blind Man's Bluff. And we'll come back to the memoir and ask him a few more questions about what's going on in this humorous, poignant. Uh, terrific story uh, about, about his life growing up uh, after being diagnosed at the age of 16 with uh, Libra's hereditary optic neuropathy. So uh, JT, we'll come back to the memoir in just a minute, but okay. I wanted to ask you, um, uh, you know, you've written a novel and now you've written a memoir. 
of those two genres, do you have a favorite? Which one was easier for you to write? Now, you've also written short stories, too. Do you have a, a favorite genre, or have you discovered that maybe one is easier than the other to write? Uh, what, a, what a great and terribly difficult question, because I love I hate them. <laughs> I, I, I just finished another novel which was so much um, so much more fun after putting the memoir behind me. Uh, and this new novel was set in, in the malls of the 80s and 90s and just allowed me to go back to my happy place. Whereas, you know, with a memoir, you don't get to choose the setting. <laughs> the setting already chose you or you chose it in life. And, you know, so you don't... It, I, I guess I'm going to, I'm going to say the novel is um, easier because you can twist and invent and it's, it's more like painting where if you need something, you just shade it or you mix that new color. Whereas sculpture like memoir is what I usually compare memoir to is, you know, you only have so much marble to chisel away, or you only have so much plaster to, to chisel away. And it's, it's, you know, you're, you're shaping it, but so many more limitations, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's, it certainly does. And I know one of the things we learned about you too, uh, in reading your book is that uh, you listen to audiobooks a lot yeah. because reading is, is a challenge, but then you fill your bookshelf with the paperbacks or the hardbacks mm -hmm. of the books that you've listened to. So what book are you listening to now or what is a book you've listened to recently that you really enjoy? Yeah, I'm, I'm reading uh, audiobooks by celebrities right now for my next column uh, and trying to pick ones that have some meat to them, not just, you know, uh, Jessica Simpson or tell all kind of deals, but, but the actor, Andrew McCarthy, uh, who's, who's since become a really well-respected uh, travel writer has a really good new memoir called Brat. Um, and I just started reading uh, Cecily Strong, the uh, SNL cast member has just published a new memoir that's set in the pandemic and, and it's really enjoying that so far. Um, other than those two, I just finished, I finally, finally got around to reading Nomadland, uh, the book that the, the Oscar winning movie was based on, which uh, Jessica Bruder, I believe is the author. And, and yeah, the, the, the movie was really bleak and the book is probably bleaker, but also entertaining. Uh, maybe a lot more humor in the book um, between the lines um, than, than the movie uh, had a chance for. Excellent. Very good. So I know that a lot of people feel like they have a memoir in them. And a lot of people uh, feel like uh, that they have a story that's worth being kind of encapsulated into a memoir. Do you have any advice as a writer if someone is in the process of putting a memoir together or is thinking about putting a memoir together? What are some things they need to consider? Or how do they know if they have a story that's worth putting into a memoir uh, as opposed to maybe something that might just be a good essay or a good short yeah. story or something like that. What, what, what advice would you give to people kind of in various stages of thinking about and or writing a memoir? Yeah, I, I teach a lot of uh, memoir and essay workshops online and most of my students are, are, you know, between ages 30 and 70, sometimes older, sometimes younger. But uh, in week one, I talk about how to 
view your story or your life uh, in a helpful way that makes you think of structure. And, and the first question uh, is really, what is the through line of your story? Because you look at somebody like Mary Carr, who's written multiple memoirs, and each one has a different through line. Uh, each life can, can yield many memoirs, but each one has to have its own angle or through line. And so, you know, if you're a celebrity or a politician or somebody who's just famous enough to sell books because you're famous, you know, your, your structure is just going to be the chronology of your life. But most of us regular unfamous people have to write something that has a shape to it, has an angle, has a through line. And that's my, my advice is think about what is the particular lens through which you're going to present this to the world. We're talking with James Tate Hill, JT Hills, joining us here on the program today on Now Appalachia. His new memoir is called Blind Man's Bluff, and we'll come back uh, to the memoir now and talk a little bit more about that. We were talking uh, before we stepped away from the book a minute ago uh, about kind of um, some of the issues that you had with uh, uh your blindness and what the impact that had on your romantic relationships. You also write candidly about a divorce that you experienced. And mm -hmm. I wanted to read a quote that you put in the memoir and just kind of have you explain uh, a little bit about this and kind of what was going on here. Um, your wife wrote to you before your divorce. She said, I will not help you hide your blindness from the world. What went on there and why did she make that particular statement to you? Yeah, and this comes in the prologue and in our relationship that was two months after we had gotten married. Before we got married, we had been together about five years. And so even though the marriage was very short, uh, the relationship was very long leading up to that. And so we had established a lot of bad precedents of how we communicated more accurately, how we didn't communicate. And, you know, like so many relationships before this, uh, this one I, I tried to downplay, tried to minimize, tried to re remove myself from situations. But eventually when you are with somebody and you're all in and they're all in, you're going to confront the truest parts of yourself. And if you're not honest about who that person is and you don't want them to be honest about who that person is, you end up walking on the same eggshells that they're walking on and you just end up seething and you end up... Um, wait, you know, and, and, and neither of us was, was a, a yeller or a violent person. And so we just ended up uh, holding these, these balls of resentment inside ourselves until they grew and they grew and they grew. And there was really nothing left to repair after that point. But we also learn as we keep reading that you found love again. And, uh, and, and I think there's a, an element or there seemed to be an element of, of, of self-acceptance uh, yeah. that, that finally comes out uh, by the time we get to the end of the memoir. And so I, I wanted to ask you, you know, uh, what that was like sort of uh, putting yourself out there again to find love for the second time, given what had happened in your first marriage. And, and what was that self-acceptance like when you finally achieved that or realized that for yourself? How did that feel? And how has that kind of guided your, your actions and interactions today? Yeah, yeah. The last few chapters of the book, uh, the last one is very short, but the two before that build toward that, that self-acceptance and um, confronting the parts of me that I couldn't change and finally acknowledging 
that there's that that the um, that the flaws about ourselves that we we often most try to hide or try to change are not viewed nearly as uh, as the importance of, of these flaws or the size of these flaws, other people are going to view them as we instruct them to view them. And so as, as I live with this, this uh, shame, outward internal shame for, for so many years, I was exuding that shame and, and in ways instructing people to you know, behave accordingly. Uh, and, and when we come closer to accepting the parts of ourselves that that just are what they are and you know realize blindness it's a disability but but you know in ways of of approaching the world it's you can just view it as a feature it's an aspect of myself it's how i see the world how i don't see the world it's how i interact with the world and there's nothing to be ashamed of about that and you know one of the the things i say very late in the in the book is you realize uh part of, of, of what Socrates, I'm quoting myself, my, my freshman year philosophy professor uh, about Socrates, wisdom is acknowledging what we don't know. And uh, what we can't do is part of that, you know, and if, if we're not fully independent, um, then so be it. I, I don't know that many of us really are independent. And I don't know that if we're going to define quote unquote independence in that way, that, that there's really that much joy in that to begin with. So JT, as we finish up with you here on the program, I wanted to ask you, uh, first off, if anyone has any questions um, about your new memoir, or if they want to talk to you about your column or any of the other work that you've done, how can they reach out to you and get in contact with you, first of all? And then secondly, where can they get copies of Blind Man's Bluff? Okay. Okay. Uh... JamesTatehill.com is my, my website. If you ever want to shoot me an email, I've got a contact form and that comes right to, to my regular email. I'm on Twitter at James Tatehill. And uh, I'm, I'm excited to say that Blind's Man, Blind Man's Bluff is uh, available everywhere. Um, I, we found it at Barnes and Noble. It wasn't even in the biography and memoir, but, but it's right there face out in the the nonfiction uh, featured, new featured nonfiction. And, and I think it's in most bookstores for the time being. Hopefully people will buy it and force them to continue to carry it. Well, it is a terrific book. It is a terrific story that is so much more than your story about blindness, but it's, it's such a wonderful story uh, of relationships. It's a story about your growth. Uh, it's a story about uh, so many things, about self-acceptance, as we've been talking about, but it's done with humor, and it's done with a poignancy that really makes it a terrific book, and we are so glad to have you on the program today to talk about it. James Tate Hill, J.T. Hill, has been our guest. We're talking to him and have been talking to him about his new memoir. It's called Blind Man's Bluff. You need to pick this up and check it out. It is a terrific late summer, early fall book to add to your to be read pile. Uh, JT is also the author of American Gothic, which was winner of the Nielsen Prize for a first novel. So JT, congratulations on the new memoir. I can't wait to uh, have you back on as your new novel gets uh, finished and gets circulated and published. We'd love to have you back on the program to talk about it. So thanks for being our guest today. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Elliot. It's been my pleasure. We want to take a moment as we finish up on this episode of Now Appalachia to give a special thank you and a shout out to the executive producer of Now Appalachia, and she's also the executive producer of all the podcasts that you hear 
on the network of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Her name is Pam Stack. So Pam, thanks for all the work that you do behind the scenes to make uh, these podcasts possible for our listening audience. We also want to remind you that this is a copyrighted podcast that is owned and operated by the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. And on our next podcast, you'll want to stay tuned because that will be the beginning of year number four of Now Appalachia on our next podcast and we've got a couple of features and some changes to things that we think you're really really going to like so if you are just tuning in to the podcast for the first time today and listening to our interview with jt hill about his memoir blind man's bluff we'd like to welcome you to the family of now appalachia and if you're a regular listener to the program we appreciate you sticking with us for however long you've been with us but we're really excited with our next podcast to kick off our fourth year of podcasting with the program on the authors on the air global radio network and really we really think you'll like some of the uh, changes and things we're going to do to kick off year four so stay tuned for that and that's going to do it for us this time on now appalachia but please come again next time and in the meantime stay well and see you someplace soon i hope you've been listening to now appalachia this is a copyrighted podcast owned and operated by the authors on the air global radio network stay tuned More outstanding podcasts are coming your way next. Stay tuned for more outstanding podcasts from the authors on the Air Global Radio Network.